how's it going champion sharks how's everyone doing this is trevor um yeah go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and become a patron and all that good stuff you get access to a bunch of back episodes and get access to a voice and discord chat server one of the things that you get an opportunity to do on the voice and discord chat server we have um movie nights that we just started we did the first one and then we have a discussion after the movie night and then we record the discussion uh, we just we just did spook sat by the door next one is network and we're also starting a book club where we read a book and we uh discuss the book and if you become patron you get to not only participate in that but you get to listen to the discussion if you didn't have a chance to participate so definitely do that uh, it's worth your time and effort there's also other perks but uh we're not gonna get into that right now i want to hop into our guests uh, if you can introduce yourself real quick michael yeah, my name is Michael French. I run the YouTube channel Retro Blasting, which is a uh, fully produced, scripted, and edited uh, video channel about the Generation X experience uh, from a pop culture standpoint. And we like to, uh, as we say, we don't back into our nostalgia for a, a warm hug. We turn and we confront our nostalgia and really look at it in an analytical and intellectual way. And I think it's a very fair way to uh, put it, like, like, one thing I hate about a lot of, I don't know what you'd even call that world of the internet. I don't know if you call it a uh, hobbyist or genre mm-hmm. because, because it's not just superheroes. It's not just toys. It's not just sorcery or any particular yeah. thing. It's kind of like an all encompassing realm of hobbies. I don't know what you call, call that world, but whatever you call that world, a lot of the sh- channels shows about it are very uncritical and very consumerist like just consume 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 give me more give me more and while you celebrate that stuff you ask a lot of hard questions and yeah um yeah and i was kind of wondering like what your history with the channel is because some of your clips kind of evidence that you've been at it a while like like you reference old clips of yourself and i realized okay this guy's been added for a long time so i was wondering is the way your channel is a response to kind of that shill mm-hmm. um access seeking trend or does it predate that kind of uh shill accents access seeking trend in well, a lot of those channels yeah well it started out uh not to go too far back but i've always been into to movies and things like that i went to film school and then i worked out in in hollywood for a little while before i realized and this is probably part of why retro blasting is the way it is i realized that um hollywood was a dysfunctional corporate place that that really wasn't as creative as it liked to claim that it was and so then i came back and in 2012 um which was about 10 years to the date that I that I came back uh, from LA, it was about ten years later. Um, I started retro blasting, and I started it because I wasn't seeing the kind of videos about retro pop culture that I wanted to watch. And I had a film background, I had a video background, um, I had a journalism background professionally, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to start making the kind of videos I want to see. I want to see objective looks at these pieces of entertainment at these pieces of merchandise, these products, these histories. Um, I want to explore, you know, larger issues about fandom and about entertainment. Uh, And slowly but surely, all of those things have kind of started to trickle in. You know, uh, Melinda, who's my partner in crime, both in life and uh, on Retroblasting, we love to talk about how 
we want the average pop culture individual, enthusiast, fan, whatever you want to call them, we want to see them level up. Because we're all adults now in Gen X. Gen X is no longer children, and yet so many of them still act like kids when it comes to discussing these things like you're talking about. They're not leveling up, as they would say in Dungeons & Dragons or a a Final Fantasy game. Um, And we really need them to level up. So that's really, yeah. It's it's something that um, we see a leveling up thing with Gen X made me think of um, Ready Player One. Like I feel like Ready Player One is Mm -hmm. the very opposite um yes in- instinct you know yes. where where it's just very masturbatory and blindly yes. blindly con- consumerist and and unquestioning and y- yes it's also said- it's also embarrassing because steven spielberg who did that movie uh was the exact wrong person to do that film because the book is so slavishly worship worshiping his his products his movies and when he took the project on he said it would be a conflict of interest to use his content in the movie. So he took all of his own content out and added all of Stanley Kubrick's content in. So just to put that side note in there, he he also is, in my estimation at this point, part of the problem. So uh, I'll say something else. Not only is he part of the problem now, I feel like in a certain way, he was part of the problem back then, but mm-hmm. he was enough of an auteur and a creator that the good aspects of what he did outweighed the bad. Like, like I still think Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are a net good, but yes. I also think they put a lot of the seeds for a lot of the bad stuff. Like, I don't think all the bad stuff that we're seeing today from Gen X and millennial creators is all a misinterpretation or a bastardization of Spielberg and Lucas. I think to some level they got, like, I think it's popular for people to think, okay, Anything bad that these people are taking out of Spielberg and Lucas is a misinterpretation. And I don't think it's totally true. I do think that a lot of the consumerism and a lot of the um, bad parts were in there planted as seeds. A lot of the, some, there was some pointless nostalgia, but there was so much good in there that it was forgivable. But these people, they did get some of it correct mm-hmm. as far as like um it wasn't all misinterpretation like I, I think for sometimes people like us sometimes well i can't speak for yourself but i can speak for myself i had a tendency to kind of give a lot of pass a lot of passes to the old people and say oh it's all misinterpretation by the new crowd and i don't think it's quite that simple mm-hmm. any, anymore right it's not it's it you know you you were talking about how uh, spielberg and lucas you know aren't aren't, uh, you know, shouldn't be totally held responsible. And I completely agree with you. Uh, Spielberg and Lucas, while they have been said, it's been said that they started reference culture because Star Wars is just Flash Gordon reskinned, even though it's a little bit more complicated than that. And uh, Indiana Jones is just Zorro's fighting Legion and Gunga Din reskinned. It's a little bit more complicated than that. The fact is, is that what these critics uh, who say that are failing to recognize is that the difference between Spielberg and Lucas, who are boomer filmmakers, and the Gen X filmmakers now, the Abrams, the Ryan Johnsons, the Zack Snyders, is that Spielberg and Lucas were operating in a in a mindset where they said, I love Flash Gordon. I'm going to go create my own space fantasy, or I love Zorro's Fighting Legion, I'm going to go create my own Saturday matinee serial 
from you know from the 40s and I'm going to call it Indiana Jones. So they went and did their own original things with those ideas in their mind whereas the filmmakers now they go into Hollywood into the system the JJ Abrams the Ryan Johnsons the Zack Snyders they go in and they say my ambition is to make my own Star Wars movie. And I do mean I want to take over that franchise. Uh, I want I want to put my mark on Superman, or I want to put my mark on Star Trek. And it's it's a completely different thing from I'm I'm doing my own thing out there, creating something new and original. These guys aren't creating the Matrix, you know? And yeah. that was only that was only 20 years ago. These guys aren't aren't doing or operating anywhere close to that level. Like I can only think of a few filmmakers that actually are. Uh, case in point, uh, the movie Get Out. Yeah. Right. Get Out is actually what Spielberg and Lucas were doing forty years ago. That that is the director saying, "I love horror and I love Hitchcock and I love suspense. I want something like that." Uh, I want to make a story like that. But I'm not going to remake Rear Window. I'm not going to remake The Birds. I'm not going to remake Psycho. I'm going to go do my own thing. I have an original idea. It's something about the smug self-satisfaction that mm-hmm. they that they have is what really drives me um, nuts because they will have nothing new to put in the tank, but mm-hmm. also <laughs> feel so superior. I, I feel like there's two types of smug superiority that they have. And... Some people think it's the opposite, but I think it's a really narcissism of small differences. What'll happen is, for example, J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson, to a lot of people who argue about this stuff online, whether they're like social justice influencer types or reactionary reactionary Mm -hmm. types, Mm -hmm. on both sides, they'll act like the two of them are so opposites, you know? Whereas to me, I think they're... And what I like about your videos is that you attack kind of J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson as symptoms of the same problem. Like, yes. like, like you recognize that's a narcissism of small differences. Uh, yes. I think the, the small difference is J.J. Abrams' smugness is in thinking, I'm the first person to get this since George Lucas, the creator. Whereas Ryan Johnson's uh, smugness is, I'm the first person to get this, and I'm including George Lucas in being the people who didn't who didn't even get this, uh, the creator himself, you know. Right. But at the same time, both of them still think they've they've created something new right. when they when they haven't. Yeah, they haven't created anything new, and and you know you can you can roll Zack Snyder into that as well. He hasn't created anything new. I mean, yes. He created Sucker Punch. Uh, take that for what it is. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it it, it it to its credit, all the visuals and everything, but being a pastiche, visually it was arresting. It was a visually original movie that just had no agency. So sorry, Zach. Uh, you know. But but my point is is that like Abrams, Johnson, those guys, uh, they come at these projects with um, this. It's it's not so much a creative mentality. Ryan Johnson might be because he's Ryan Johnson is uh, he's he's that guy that comes in and kicks the table over just to see if it'll shock everybody. Um, Abrams, on the other hand, it comes at it from a very corporate mindset, which is this thing is really important and a lot of people like it. But the only thing I'm looking at is what do I need to change about it? And it's like, uh that might be the wrong attitude to take. And, and Ryan Johnson obviously changed a lot about it too because he wanted to put his physical fingerprint on it. Um, 
but they, in doing so, in trying to own it, like you said, when you when you just mentioned that, you know, Ryan Johnson feels like he's the first person that actually gets the property, when in truth he does not, and J.J. Abrams is, feels like he's the follow-up to George Lucas, and that makes him puff out his chest. These guys, they, they feel like the, I, I do feel like they they think they're doing the world a cultural service, and I don't mean that in any any social justice political way, although although maybe somebody could interpret it that way. What I'm referring to is they look at it as I'm going to make my cultural mark the way George Lucas did because I'm going to reinvent Star Wars for, for this generation. I'm going to reinvent it. I'm, I have my finger on the, on the pulse of society now. I know what the zeitgeist is now. And it's like, no, you, you don't, because if you did, you wouldn't be remaking a chapter of a 40-year-old franchise, you'd be off doing something original. People who understand cultural cultural trends and, and movements throughout entertainment history are always doing something original. They're not doing something that's been done before or or adding on to something that's already been done. You know, like let's let's take an unrelated example. Let's look at let's look at the Transformers. All right. Everybody knows what the Transformers is, right? The Transformers was a concept from 1984 that broke in the United States big time uh, as an animated series on television and a toy line in toy stores. Well, Optimus Prime, Megatron, we've heard these names. They still are the, the big names in the franchise. And so 35 years later, 36 years later, whatever it is, nothing has really moved that needle from that original concept. All the movies just recycle Optimus Prime versus Megatron, Optimus Prime versus Megatron. And all we ever talk about and the dragon we chase is the original 1984 concept. People just keep trying to reinvent it. So my point in saying that is none of the subsequent Transformers shows or Michael Bay movies have had a cultural impact like the original. And similarly, no no subsequent iteration made by Abrams or Johnson or Zack Snyder of Star Wars or Star Trek or Superman has had any of the cultural impact or agency of the original concept. So that's why we talk about The Matrix a lot more than we talk about The Last Jedi or The Force Awakens as far as it yeah, we talk about it a lot when it comes out and there are arguments on the internet. But as far as like talking about it like it's this this cultural lodestone of entertainment, I know more people who are talking about Get Out and are still talking about Get Out than are talking about, you know, Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. And, and you know what's interesting about The Matrix is now uh, they've announced they're going to reboot The Matrix. And it's like, it's like yeah. even... So, so it's happened to everything now. Nobody is... But... Um, What's really disturbing me is the half-life of this stuff, like the life cycle, because uh-huh. Jordan Peele, even that movie now, has already become ripped off to the point of parody. Yes. It, it, it's like the cycle for these things is so much faster, you know? And, and mm-hmm. there's always been kind of rip-offs to stuff. Like, Battlestar Galactica was arguably, um, in a lot of ways, a rip-off to um, Star Wars, but it still kind of had its own flavor or whatever, but right. in such a short time after Get Out, there's been so many racial horror mm-hmm. um, movies. There was one called Ma that was pretty bad. There was one that we just saw called Antebellum that was pretty bad. And then Jordan Peele himself is producing people doing ripoffs of Get Out. So Lo- Lovecraft Country, which I haven't really enjoyed, um, feels so much like Get Out. And I'm like, I feel like Jordan Peele is doing the type of self-cannibalization that 
it took Steven Spielberg a couple of decades to do with um to do with uh Ready Player One. Uh, yeah. they've already uh lured Jordan Peele into doing um self cannibalization only a couple of years after after um Get Out, and that kind of that kind of disappointed me about how corporations are like doing that feeding and, and yeah. sucking of creativity out of things faster than than ever. So I got a feeling the Get Out uh, template's going to be played out a lot faster than say Star Wars or Indiana Jones um was. It might very well be the nice thing to hear though cuz I I hadn't heard that yet uh about about Jordan Peele but that's encouraging to hear on one in one respect because uh yeah that you're right that a a, co- a corporation is essentially luring him into this series of of projects but my counter uh perspective on that would be maybe Jordan Peele saw an opportunity to at least have a hand in controlling what carbon copies get greenlit. You know, maybe he's trying to at least guide the hand of the trend that he started, you know, and 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 maybe that will make, that will at least keep, get out, you know, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, unencumbered in the future by some of these, because that happens all the time. You know, when Indiana Jones broke onto the scene in 1981, there were all these copycat movies that came out, you know, and a lot of, a lot of old, license-free books were dusted off like King Solomon's Mines and, and you know, canon films put Richard Chamberlain in a movie with Sharon Stone just to try and capitalize on that by just remaking King Solomon's Mines. It, it, not even close to what the book was about, but that's what they do. Um, yeah, you're going to get that, but you're right. The life cycle, because of the internet, because of streaming, because of how fast they move, and, and I guess the pandemic has slowed that down a little bit because the movies and things aren't getting made as quickly, but... but um, but yeah, the life cycle has changed quite a bit. But that also means that when a movie like Get Out gets the the amount of word of mouth and critical discussion that it got, and it did, it got an epic amount of discussion um, in in this digital world. You know, in in twenty in twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, I can't remember the exact year that movie came out. The amount of the amount of chatter that it generated was staggering for the times that we live in, because, like you said. That cycle is so fast, you know. Um, nobody's talking about Avatar anymore. Yeah. The studios keep talking about it, but nobody else cares. And that was that movie was Avatar. But it just shows that when you make a digital uh, carbon copy of Dances with Wolves, and everybody jokes the moment it comes out that it's Dances with Wolves, and you got a, a director that's notoriously slow uh, off the starting line to get movies made, that it's not going to be relevant. Whereas Get Out, on the other hand, and, you know, I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm reaching for other films to, to use as examples uh, in, in this day and age. Um, they'll come to me. But there's a few that actually have made an impact, but not many. Uh, something interesting about Avatar, that's a great example. Um, there was a kind of meme that started Twitter, and it pops up every couple of months, kind of as a joke, where someone kind of independently discovers on their own, and it starts the whole conversation happening all over again well someone will say i've seen this pop up like several times over the years someone will say isn't it weird that avatar was um the biggest movie ever at the time it came out and no one can remember almost anything about it and then mm-hmm. everyone was like chiming in the comments like oh my god this is so funny and then people will try to compare like what was the main actor's name what was the character's name what was the plot and people cannot remember anything outside of 
a guy in a wheelchair and virtual world and blue tribe and a guy who looks like cable from x-men like like that was all people could um come up with the actor steven lang looked a lot like uh the the character cable uh yeah yeah Josh but, Brolin. uh wait no Oh, was, just the character, not not literally Josh Brolin. Oh, yeah, Deadpool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah. Th- that's one of the few things. But people cannot remember anything out of Avatar, including myself. Like, uh, Avatar made kind of no mental impact the way, mm-hmm. say, a Star Wars did. Uh, no one remembers anything. But the irony is, even Avatar to bring it back anyway. <laughs> so, so it's like, people just don't... They're so afraid to leave any stone unturned or any um, property un- untapped. They have yeah. to drain everything out of. Yeah, there's a big there's a big difference between um, you know movies that cause a lot of negative internet chatter versus versus movies that have lasting cultural um, agency and and those are two very different things in our in our modern world of cyberspace and interwebs and all those things that are on the computer like the it's a very different world now uh, in that respect but I'm, I I. Like Melinda and I went to see in the theater Blade Runner 20, 2049. You, you talk about a movie that was an underdog in the theater in 1982 when it came out and has since become arguably one of the top five science fiction movies ever made is the original Blade Runner. And so we, we go in to, to, to watch Blade Runner 2049 because we're, we're fans of the original. And the new film is staggeringly good. But because it's coming off of Blade Runner the original, we keep thinking to ourselves, well, it's really, really, really good. And that's great because it's it's like Empire Strikes Back 35 years too late. But but here it is, and it's awesome. Uh, so at least it stands on its own. You know, at least it's it's a worthy addition. It's not it's not a Force Awakens, it's not a Rise of Skywalker, it's you know, it's a good movie. But then we got excited a few months later when we found out that, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Dennis Villeneuve, or however you pronounce his last name. Mm, I, I, know you, I know who you're talking about, but yeah, but yeah, yeah I don't know how to pronounce his name either. Yeah, he gets signed on for Dune. And there is a cult following around David Lynch's Dune. There is a whole rabbit hole you can go down about the lost uh, Jarodowski, or however you pronounce that man's name's aborted version of Dune that never got made before that. Uh, But this guy that just did this brilliant follow-up to a science fiction movie that everybody was frightened was getting a follow-up because nobody wanted it ruined by a sequel. And he he made a great movie. He now has the, the keys to Dune. And so we're all sitting around wondering here at Retroblasting HQ, we're sitting around going, could Dune, even though it's a book adaptation, could a worthy filmed version of Dune come out of this man and become another Star Wars? Could it become as impactful finally? We know the original film tried to be a Star Wars in 83 or 84, whenever that came out, uh, David Lynch's, but it was a notorious, infamous disaster uh, behind the scenes. And it, it didn't it didn't have any legs. So can this man, now that he's the, pri- the, the pump has been primed by Blade Runner 2049, can he bring us something truly original from a from a brilliant book that a lot of people haven't read? You know, and that's okay. A lot of people they they experience their literature through film and television now. Uh, that's fine, but you got to make it the right way. You got to you got to be smart about it. And so I have hope for guys like like Jordan Peele and guys like Dennis Villeneuve or however you pronounce his last name. Um, there are a few of them out there, but too many of them have have gone the way of, they, they've gone to the school of filmmaking run by Kevin Smith 
and they're just kind of making forgettable waffle. Yeah, and, Kevin Smith yeah. is a great is a great example. Uh, I didn't see I didn't see the latest uh, Blade Runner, but uh, mm-hmm. that's actually a question I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Right, I, I plan to see it, but I just never got around to it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like even when these things are good, mm-hmm. I still think to myself, as good as this was, wouldn't it have been great if you made an original kind of like what uh, George Lucas did, which is take. Um, something that you were inspired by and make your own like, like what if he just made made the Blade Runner sequel but made it with totally new names added new elements or whatever like mm-hmm. I still even feel kind of disappointed even when this um, mindset creates something watchable or good like 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 to give to give an example what you mentioned but here's one example is, is Alan Moore Alan Moore originally was going to make Watchmen mm-hmm. with, with the Charlton um comic book characters so it was right. going to be question instead of rorschach um it was going sorry it's going to be captain adam instead of uh mm-hmm. dr manhattan and down mm-hmm. and down the line a peacemaker instead of comedian and the dc said you know what maybe we shouldn't i mean ryan johnson didn't exist at the time but but basically it would have been kind of similar to what ryan johnson did with um star wars where he kind of was like kicking the table or breaking the toys and they're, right. they're like you know what we want to use these characters in their classic form maybe you shouldn't use these characters and alan moore was like uh, well okay you know what i'll make i'll make my own and by making his own i think it probably unlocked all these ideas that he couldn't uh do before he could change whole backstories like by the time he was done rorschach really wasn't the question anymore right. you know right. he, he wasn't a newscaster um turned objectivist crime fighter he was able to make him into a whole different civilian identity and and so forth and mm-hmm. i feel that same way with when i hear about things like blade runner 2049 i have no doubt that it is very good the same way that i think um if alan moore did watchman with the original charlton characters i think it still would have been good but i think right. there was kind of a potential unlock there because because same with um Star Wars and Indiana Jones, those weren't like one-to-one um, ripoffs. If if anything, no. uh, George Lucas had like four or five different things he yes. mixed together and kind of made a mm-hmm. soup. Sa- same thing like like how Jordan Peele did with Get Out. Get Out is yes. really like four or five inspirations in in yes. one movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess what you've pinpointed with with my statement about about Dune um, is the. Uh, not the lowering of, of expectations, although I guess you could say that. It, it's kind of like, I recognize that I would prefer a lot of original stuff. I would prefer more originality coming out of Hollywood right now. But I also recognize that not only are the people in charge not interested in that, but also m- most of the generation of directors that are there right now are also aware that that is not a thing that, that they're they're wanting to do. And so I then look for opportunities where I think, Okay, well, what's what's the the untapped well of of at least an adaptation that that needs you know elevation? What, where's an opportunity for something like that to get elevated? Um, but you, but your point is absolutely spot on, which is if if I if I had my druthers, I would like to see uh, Villain Venu go off and do something totally original. But the funny part is. When when Ryan Johnson left Last Jedi and went off to do his next project, which was Knives Out, everybody was talking about, oh, Ryan Johnson's going back to doing something original. 
And I was like, okay, great. I, I actually will watch that. You know, that, I'll see what that's all about. They're like, it's a classic whodunit. And then I watched all the trailers and the trailers were like, it's a whodunit in the tradition of Agatha Christie and, you and, know, and, all, and, the, all and, that and stuff. And Clue, and Clue the movie. And <laughs> Clue the movie, yes. And then I watched the film. Film's not bad. It's not a bad movie, but it was, it was, it, I had to question within the first 15 minutes of the film whether or not this generation of filmmakers even knows what they're making anymore. That Do they even know literally what they're making? Because the whole movie was marketed as a whodunit. But within the first 15 minutes, it's very, very clear because they tell you outright to set the whole tension of the movie up. It is a how done it, not a who done it. Mm. And so you sit there and you go, Ryan, do do you think you're making a who done it? <laughs> because I don't I don't think you are paying attention to you're paying attention to your visuals, you're paying attention to your script, you're paying attention to telling a, a suspenseful film, but you're not you're not keeping your eye on the ball close enough to know what kind of film you're making. And so then you market it a certain way, and I, I sit back and I go, much like you didn't know what George Lucas's stuff was about, I don't think you really knew what Agatha Christie's stuff was about either. He strikes me as someone who gets so bogged into the details and cl- uh-huh. and cleverness that he misses the actual essence to a lot of stuff. So, for example, even with the Star Wars and the um, Last Jedi and all these supposed subversions that he's doing, which I think were very um, overrated, Right. Um, I I feel like he when it came time to talk about what actual Jedi's and balancing mm-hmm. the Force were about and all that stuff, he missed a lot of very basic values. Like right, like, right. like he didn't understand George Lucas' values at all. And to give an example, like the idea that it's about just black and white, good versus evil, and the Jedi's had so much hubris to think that um they were all good. And it's like wait, and I'm not at all a original lucas star wars expert at all i'm a right. i'm a casual but mm-hmm. even I, I i was watching the movie and i was thinking wait a minute i'm not a, i'm not a diehard i'm not one of those people who reads the behind the scenes making of star wars type of stuff but i'm pretty sure the whole prequel trilogy was all about the jedi hubris mm-hmm. and thinking that they knew it all and that was the whole reason why the sith were able to rise and wipe them out and i'm pretty sure the whole original trilogy was all about Luke Skywalker correcting that as in yes. like as in like Yoda wanted to reaffirm the same mistake and just say wipe out the emperor wipe out um Vader you know like like mm-hmm. vanquish the evil and yeah Luke was like no it's not as simple as just wiping out bad and one of Luke's visions was visualizes that he does eradicate um Vader and then when he lifts off the mask the mask is his face. And right. the, the idea was if you just think that, you know, you're all good and Vader's all bad and your solutions can be solved by just destroying Vader, all that's going to happen is you're going to become like like the new Vader. That that It's that right. black and whiteness. And that mm-hmm. was the reason why um, the Emperor kind of really didn't care who killed who. The Emperor didn't really care if Vader killed Luke or if Luke killed Vader because if Luke killed Vader then the dark side would have ended up being in Luke and the Emperor would have won anyway. Like, that was the original hubris that and the Mm -hmm. cycle that Luke transcended. So then when I'm seeing Ryan Johnson with such smug self-satisfaction have Luke saying, oh, we were so... I'm like, you think you've discovered something that was already there. You're, Uh you're, You're so simple and arrogant 
that mm-hmm. you, and you think you're so much better than this befuddled boomer that you've just basically rediscovered yeah. what he already, uh, you know. Yeah, it's and it, you know just by you, you know, saying I'm I'm a casual viewer of these movies, but I'm going to explain this plot, and you explained it 100 percent correctly. What does that say about like? I, I don't I don't want to imply that. Ryan Johnson is overthinking things. What I what I think is that he's just looking for a like I said at the beginning, he's looking for a way to just make a mark. He's looking for a way to just it reminds me of um the scene in The Fifth Element where Gary Oldman just deliberately uh, knocks the glass off the table and shatters it just to prove a point that all these little cleaning robots come out and he he looks at Ian Holm and he's like, see what I just did by causing chaos? You know, I, I have, I, I make all this stuff happen. All these little things go into motion because I created this chaos. And you want to look at somebody like Ryan Johnson and say, well, yeah, you, you did create a lot of chaos, but it was nonsensical chaos that wasn't necessary and only served to wreck, um, to wreck a carefully crafted story. Now, I, I do... I do have to to say that I, I did not like Force Awakens. And so th- there was a cascading problem there. But like you pointed out just a second ago, uh, Trevor, is that is that the story and the learnings were already locked in and arced over by the end of Return of the Jedi. So them going back and hitting the cheap repeat was always doomed to failure on that front. Yeah. Um, we've got, we've got, we've, we've, uh, and I know that Ryan Johnson probably saw that and he was like, well, I got to find, I got to find some ways to do some interesting things because I, I see that this is happening this way. And it's like, well, what you're trying to do doesn't work either. But Kevin Smith, I know I'm taking like a hard left, but I promise it'll all link up. It's all good. Ke- Kevin Smith started a lot of these problems when he made movies where all the characters did was talk about other movies and then visually reference other movies. And so you get to a point where you're going to have a schism between the two different types of directors in the chair. You're going to have an Abrams follows and flows off of the Kevin Smith, you know, book of learning. And he's like, I'm not just going to reference things. I'm going to reference them within their own thing. I'm not going to reference Star Wars. I'm going to get Star Wars and then reference Star Wars within Star Wars. It's going to be meta. It's going to be great. And then you've got Ryan Johnson who rejects all that because He's the establishment director that positions himself as anti-establishment creatively. And so he comes in and he's like, I'm not doing anything typical to everybody else. Watch this. I'm going to wreck everything. I'm going to knock that glass right off the table. And it's like, mm, all both of you guys have bad timing. Like, you and, know. And, and also to go back to the narcissism of small differences thing, I think mm-hmm. he overrates his own creativity and subversiveness. So this is, the, yes. to me, the problem that happened, right? What, what I was thinking when I was watching the movie was, I was like, if you really want to do something different, say you really want to do something different, and you really think that you're that much smarter and cleverer than George Lucas and whatever. And, and this is one of the big problems I think that these people kind of have, right? Is I remember when... I was uh, younger and I used to do creative writing classes and all this stuff. I would try really too hard to be clever because I thought I was smarter than I was. And one of the um, best pieces of advice I was given by a creative writing teacher was um, he was like, try to understand why the original thing works before you think you can um, throw a curveball curveball at it. Because, because, uh-huh. because if you don't understand the the typical way of doing something that you're not going to even understand what you're subverting 
So, right. so if you don't know what you're trying to subvert, you actually a lot of times end up creating the same thing again because um, you're trying to subvert the superficial part of it. So, so it's kind of like how Ryan Johnson, in thinking that he was subverting something because he was subverting the superficial, he walked ass backwards into the whole moral of the first trilogy. Right. Thinking that he was doing something new. And um, what, what really annoyed me about Last Jedi, a lot of fans were like, oh, I guess you just want the same thing over and over again. Uh, I guess you can't handle subversion. But I was like, okay, what was subverted, right? Let, let's, let's think about it. The main character goes to another planet, goes to another planet and sees someone who exiled themselves to the other planet. And that person refuses to train them uh-huh. for most of the movie. And then at the last second... They kind of see the error of their ways. And so it's like, to me, it's like saying, hey, I'm going to take you somewhere you've never been before. But instead of like, you know, like, hey, you always go to upstate New York, right? From New York City. Is that what you always do? Well, you know what? I'm going to take you someplace totally different. And what the person does is they go 90% of the way. And then you're like, wait, this kind of looks like it's just going to upstate New York. You're like, oh, yeah, really? You think so? <laughs> and then in Albany, take a hard right into a lake. Right. Right. right? So you take a right. hard right into yeah. a lake. And it's like, okay, if you really want to be something that's different, why not just fly me to India? Like, do something really interesting, yes. right? But then on top of uh-huh. that, you're like, okay, so I subverted your expectations, right? Uh, at the last second, I drove into the lake, right? And, you know, I'd be like, well, <laughs> well, I would have done something different, but I got to admit that was a little different. I don't think it's as different as what you expected, but I mean, I don't think it's as different as you think it is, but I'll, I'll admit it's a little bit different. And once you give them that, that pat in the back you're like okay great now let's fish out this waterlogged crashed car and finish going to buffalo i was like wait a minute i thought the whole point was to go someplace different uh-huh. he goes oh no i just wanted to show you that i could drive into the river but i still want to get to buffalo when we're all said and done uh, right. and then i'm like okay now i really don't get the point point." and to bring that uh analogy that, that metaphor back home right uh okay so the whole subversion is supposed to be that luke has given up on you know the jedi and whatever Okay, fine. The whole thing's supposed to be about um, the supposed original lesson is supposed to be, you know, good has to fight evil and is and with great power comes great responsibility and whatever. That's supposed to be what you're subverting. Okay, fine. You subvert it by retracing like 90% of Empire Strikes Back when uh, Luke was being trained by um, um, Yoda, right? Yeah, um, yep. So you do 90% of that, but you stop it with, you know, Luke holding out longer than Yoda did. That's pretty much the whole subversion, that Luke uh, held out longer than Yoda did. But at the end, what ends up happening, he does end up, you know, kind of giving her uh, the blessing to to go. They do lift the ship out. They do. um, Yoda comes out, gives him a pep talk. And what ends up happening? At the very end, he... um, he goes and dies like Obi-Wan. So it's like, uh, so at the end of the movie, he decides that, uh, there were, and what's the last thing he says? There will always be a Jedi. So I'm like, okay, uh-huh. what did you subvert? You still ended up in Buffalo. Like like, right. like for you driving into that river in Albany or driving to that lake in Albany, we, every one of his arcs ends up in the expected place that that uh-huh. the original trilogy would have put it in in the first place. Like, like right. so... Um, Basically, uh, th- there will be no more Jedi. Oh, that's a subversion. At the end, a kid with a broom is um, moving stuff around, and it, and and Luke Skywalker saying there will always be a Jedi. Uh, Luke saying I'm I'm out of this. Um, I'm out of the good versus evil game. Whatever. Movie ends with um, Luke uh, coming back and 
fighting evil and saying there will always be a Jedi and dying like Obi-Wan. Like, so, so I'm like, you did 90% the same movie. You just took one turn into a river to surprise people and then just put the now broken down, dilapidated car. The car is in worse situation than it was. Yeah. So you might as well just kept went straight to Buffalo without going to the river in the first place. All you did was get to the same destination, but now in a broken car. Yeah. Yeah, everything. I'll give one more example. I know I'm talking a while, but... No, you're good. Yeah, yeah. I'll give another... There's so many examples from the movie of it doing this, but another example is they go to that gambling planet, right? And first off, mm -hmm. 90% of that is the Lando Calrissian betrayal plot. So it's not as big a subversion right. as it's supposed to be. You know, like, um, instead of Han and Leia finding Lando and getting betrayed by, by that smuggler, I can't remember the name. It's such a bad movie. as Finn and... And, oh, and Finn and Rose find someone who's supposed to be like the new Lando, except they don't know him. And he um, betrays him. Like, pretty much the same plot. I mean, the only subversion is that he doesn't end up getting a conscience and coming around. But that's still like 90% of the drive to Albany. I mean, 90% yeah. of the drive to Buffalo. Uh, the, turn into the, the turn into the lake is that he doesn't um, have a heart of gold. He stays a traitor. But then, you know, they still end up rebelling and getting away and everything and fighting another day. But within that plot, the big subversion was supposed to be, oh, so you think um, your guys are good, the new guys are bad, right? Well, what do you know, why would you know if you find out they're selling weapons to, to both sides? Ooh, you know, big big subversion. Oh, uh, war. There's no good people in war. Ooh. I'm like, okay, where are you going to go with it? Um, yeah. All that happens is, well... All that is messed up, but we're going to do the exact same thing we were going to do in the beginning, which is uh, fight fight the new empire and and fight on the side of the people that you just told us sell to both sides. So for all these subversions, all the characters make the same end choices they would have made in a Lucas movie, you know, uh, mm -hmm. which almost makes it worse because at least in the Lucas movies, it was internal consistency. Here, yes. you have them all get introduced to some kind of new, complicating, gray area scenario only to make the same black and white supposedly black and white decision that, you, that you're saying that you're above so it tries to have his cake and eat it too where it's yeah yeah, yeah. and that's that, another great example of that is man of steel you know man of steel as a movie tries to have its cake and eat it too through subversion as well well we're not going to ever have lois not know that he's superman she's always going to know and um he's uh going to grow up in a family where the father isn't noble. The father thinks he should let people die so that he stays safe and secret. And, well, we're going to have him kill somebody at the end, which is something Superman's never supposed to do. And so what you end up with, both with Ryan Johnson and with Snyder and people like that, less so with Abrams, but Abrams has his own problems, like we've talked about with the mimicry. You end up uh, with Snyder and Johnson making characters that are not aspirational. They're making characters that if they're not full on nihilistic, they're getting there fast, and and so they they don't seem to value the idea of characters that the audience can aspire to. There, I mean, they have Hollywood has set up over the last few decades the uh, the false idea that if a character is aspirational, like a Luke Skywalker or a Superman or or something like that, then they are not relatable, and I even heard I even heard that criticism going on uh, when uh, they did the first Black Panther movie with Chadwick Boseman, where they were saying he's he's noble, he's this and that, but he's not he's not relatable. And I'm like, but he is relatable. 
He's relatable because there are a lot of us that struggle in this world today trying to stay and remain a good person despite all the challenges that we face where some of these challenges could most easily be overcome if we just compromised our principles a little bit or compromised our morals here and there or whatever, and didn't stand our ground and acquiesce to pressure and all this kind of stuff. And Hollywood seems to have populated itself with creators uh, by and large who don't recognize that anymore. They don't, they themselves don't relate to aspirational characters in any way. And so what they have to do is they have to debase those characters before they put them on screen. And Luke Skywalker in that regard is no different in The Last Jedi from Superman and Man of Steel. And it is kind of depressing when you think about it. Now, I am glad to, to say that, you know, for some reason the, in, the, in the Marvel world, uh, the characters of Captain America, Black Panther, um, I, I don't think there were any other paragons besides those two uh, in, the, in the crew at that point, but they, they were not compromised. They were criticized later by cynical people, yeah. but they were, not, they were not compromised in the execution. I, I mean, I think that also comes down to this idea of overrating relatability um, to begin with yes. because it doesn't have to be all about... See, I think one of the problems that people have nowadays is everything is all or nothing. So you either have to be a Mary Sue, which is you get mm -hmm. everything in kind of an unearned way, you know, uh, where you're just like golden or you're so relatable that you become unlikable. And I feel like the best, the best um, properties or whatever find a way to balance um, inspirational and relatability like, like there should be yes. a certain part of the property that is borderline unattainable to keep you striving but, but right. if it's too unattainable then it loses relatability and i feel like the inspirational part has kind of died and they just want it to be relatable so you get things like that green lantern movie that's a perfect example of uh gen x rot you know the whole re reality mm -hmm. bites thing you know where, where yes. it's like uh that was from you you talked about the, the reality bites mindset and mm -hmm. and Ethan Hawke's character had just this total unearned feeling of smugness and superiority over Ben Affleck's character. And like, for what? Like, what was his big contribution to the world that made him think he was so much better than um, right. Ben Affleck outside of not wearing a suit? Like some empty uh, gesture, right? But the Green Lantern with, with uh, Ryan Reynolds, they made him so such a jerk that you didn't... Like, I want him to die. I wanted the bad guy. I wanted Nashville to kill him. I, I, I was like yeah. this... like like. If, if this is what you think is relatable, that actually shows how low you think of your audience. If you think your audience sees themselves in this guy, then you must think your audience is just a bunch of, either you're an asshole or, or yeah. you think your audience is a bunch of assholes. You know? Yeah, right. yeah. So there's, there's a tired argument that's been running around for a long time, well before any of these movies were even existent. But um, it was all about, it was specifically between Superman and Batman. And it was always about like, why is Warner Brothers keep just, cranking out Batman stuff and not doing Superman stuff. And in geek geek uh, and nerd conversations, it always boiled down to, well, I can't relate to Superman. I can relate to Batman. I can't relate to Superman. Superman's not as relatable as Batman. And they kept using that word relatable, relatable. And finally, I, I remember I was sitting at a, a Dragon Con, uh, which is a big event here in Atlanta every year, um, big comic book sci-fi fantasy event. And... Uh, I leaned over because you meet all these random people at these at these events and you sit down on one of the hotel couches and you just strike up a conversation and then five people pile in and it becomes a, a row. But um, 
I said, and keep in mind, this was before any of the Snyder movies came out. This was before even, uh, well, it would have been after uh, Christopher Nolan had started his Dark Knight stuff around that time. And I just said, because they were saying, Batman's more relatable. I can't relate to Superman. And I said, let me get this straight. You're telling me that you can relate more to a guy whose parents were murdered, one. And then I looked at the guy and I said, were your parents murdered? And he's like, no, thank goodness. I said, all right, that's one. So you can't relate to that. Uh, Are you a billionaire or are you the heir of a billionaire family? Well, no, of course not. I said, all right, so you can't relate to that. And I said, all right, uh, do you know like 25 languages like Bruce Wayne? Well, well, no. Okay, so you can't relate to that. Do you know, you know, 15 different martial arts with multiple black belts like he does? No. Are you a Olympics level gymnast? Have you trained your body, honed it to beyond perfection? No, 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 no. Were you a 4.2 GPA student that went to all these amazing science courses and, and electrical engineering and computer courses like Batman or Bruce Wayne has so that he can literally build the Batmobile in a cave and a supercomputer for Oracle? No, no. I was saying, you can't relate to any of those things either. Let me ask you this, though. And then I, I turned the question around. I said, do you have a nine to five job? They're like, well, yeah. I said, okay, your boss expects you to be there on time, right? Yeah. All right, you, get, you, you have an apartment? Yeah, I have an apartment. Okay, you got to pay the rent, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, ever, you ever had a girl that you liked that just didn't seem to notice you? Yeah, yeah, that's happened a lot. Okay, yeah, you can relate to that, can't you? So I looked at the guy and I said, you can literally relate to everything about Superman except his superpowers. You cannot relate to anything about Batman. Not one thing. And you know what the response was? The guy was like, well, uh, yeah, but he's dark. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So here we are. Like, this, this is what it boils down to. You like him because he's dark. But that's not relating to somebody. That's just window dressing. That's... Uh, well, well, what you bring up is a great point that I struggle with a lot when I argue with people online. And you had a video that was very um, good about this, about how a lot of these fans don't even mean what they actually mean when they're talking about stuff. Yeah. Now, I, th- I, I think it was the, the canon, the canon is overrated, overrated one. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is the one, which is the, or was it why fans are turning on their own? Which is the one where they keep saying, doesn't matter. Oh, that, doesn't that's matter. canon is overrated. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's canon overrated because I watched all of them uh-huh. uh, in a row because they kind of uh, um, build on each other. Right. So I kind of forget sometimes the exact one like it's from, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but in that one, you, you brought up how a lot of things people say when you actually confront them about why it's not uh, true and not accurate, then the truth kind of comes out. And a similar situation I had while well, I was talking about Watchmen, right? Uh-huh. I was talking about I was talking about how this thing really ruins the spirit of Alan Moore's original, and that Damon Lindelof, in you know, to go, to go on to that um, similar thing we were talking about with Ryan Johnson thinks he's smarter than he is but is actually very intellectually incurious uh-huh it very has a very profound lack of intellectual um curiosity to the point that it um is very much not in the spirit of alan moore's watchman because it alan moore's watchman is as full of intellectual and curiosity like i'm sorry intellectual curiosity all damon lindelof has is shadow cleverness right and i was i was saying how and the way, one way I'll put it to you is I can go through um, Alan Moore's Watchmen, come up with dozens and dozens of big questions that it poses, even if it 
doesn't ultimately answer those questions or answers them with other questions or leaves or leaves um, the viewer um, to answer the questions themselves. It's always asking uh, big questions like, um, what is the point of like struggling through life? Uh, is it possible to fight monsters without becoming um, a monster? And if it's not possible, fight monsters without becoming a monster. Is this worth fighting monsters at all? Or, or the, who watches the Watchmen? Like it's one of the first questions. Like it starts off with a question in, on, on a wall in one, in the first issue. Like it's full of questions. And I, I was ask, and I was asking, can anybody tell me what questions Damon Lindelof asked in this? You know, like because uh, the only one I have is is white supremacy bad? Uh, duh, yes. Right, uh, right. Did, did white supremacy um, happen in this country? Uh, yes, yes, you know. Uh, so it's like he asked questions, but the kind of questions were after a yes or a no. There's not really much to go with it. It's not like really uh, grappling um, existentialist type questions. Right. It's just very uh, plain. And and somebody was um, arguing with me that it did ask a lot of questions. Uh, you know, so... <laughs> So I kept asking, like, what are the questions? And then they couldn't uh, give me any outside of um, the white supremacy happened or whatever. So then they're like, yeah, but it was it was fun anyway. So I'm like, why did you argue me about these questions if all it came down to was it was fun? Right. Like, like yeah. just say, I don't care about this uh-huh. questions thing or the intellectual curiosity. I just want to watch something fun. Uh-huh. But why did you make me waste this whole conversation only to make my point to say that it doesn't matter anyway. Like, like, like I would rather you just be honest. And I don't think they're even consciously lying. They just don't like the idea of you not liking something that they like. So they want to throw everything in the kitchen sink, Uh whether they actually believe it or not, just to shut you up. Right. And they also have a hard time fathoming. I, I, it's so funny. You, you told me about this conversation. I can't tell you how many times I've been in, in, conversation like that. They also have a really hard time grappling with the idea that a person like you or a person like myself is only having fun most of the time in a movie when a movie or a television show or a story or a book is giving you enough to intellectually hang on to that's logical, that's motivated properly, that makes sense. That makes the story more compelling and more satisfying, which is why when I sit through something like the theatrical version of Ready Player One, I'm I walk away feeling very empty, feeling not depressed, empty, but just like that was a useless experience, kind of empty. There's nothing to hold on to in this film. There's nothing to sink your teeth into, and so you just walk away going, "Well, um, I guess I'm going to go paint a fence or something," because you know. I think though, deep down, they walk away empty, but they don't even realize they walk away empty because they're so divorced from meaningful experiences. Yeah. They have no point of contrast. So they don't even realize, like, like, like to me, it's like if somebody has never had a real nutritious meal, uh-huh. then they're going to think that that high and low uh, insulin rush, glucose rush they get from eating um, McDonald's three times a day is satiation. Right. You know, th- th- because they never had any um, contrast or if you've never had any deep, spiritual um awakenings then you might actually think um the highs and lows of taking cocaine are are the same thing are interchangeable you know you don't realize that um the the come down that you have that crash is actually not normal or desirable Mm -hmm. And, and and to me the way you can tell when something is is uh empty um contentless 
um, rush as opposed to a real satiating um, high is how quick you need to replenish. Like if you have good nutritious food, you don't need to like binge on it. Like it's hard to binge on vegetables and grilled meat. Yes. You know, you know, like, like but um, potato chips and junk food and sugar, you can like um, not even realize you're over eight until you have like that food hangover the uh-huh. next day and you're 300 pounds. And the emptiness of it all is kind of shown on how they consume their media. Like it's just endless consumption and binging. Yes. You're, you're watching movies and consuming these empty comics all the time. But whenever you don't have a movie, all you're doing is going online looking for trailers, for teaser trailers, for previews of teasers to the trailer, for reaction videos, for like nonstop news, uh-huh. nonstop announcement. And I'm like, the reason why you're never full is because nothing is um, has content. Nothing is satiating you. Even though you're claiming that this is better than... You, you, like when Star Wars came out, because I'm old enough to remember when the original movies came out, people watched Empire Strikes Back, and they were good for a couple of years. Yeah. They didn't have to keep checking for news about it because there was so much to digest. Like, the movie kicked your ass uh-huh. and gave you a lot to talk about and recover from. And by the time Jedi came, you were just hungry enough for more. You didn't need, like, a Star Wars show announcement to follow up empire five minutes after you walked out the theater right right exactly yeah it's it it was a it was a film that as gary kurtz the producer of it said and he produced star wars and empire uh he did not produce jedi for the the reasons uh uh that he and lucas had a creative falling out because of this um he worked very closely with the writers and the director directors lucas on the first one and then Irvin kershner on empire to make sure that those films worked on multiple subtextual levels so that anybody watching, no matter their age, no matter their demographic, no matter their background, would get something out of it that was primal, that was um, uh, sort of uh, archetypally important to the human condition. Uh, and and I know that sounds lofty, but clearly it worked because those films are still being talked about and compared to other films to this day. The reason people think it's lofty to describe Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back that way is because it didn't explicitly say, hey, look at me, I'm being lofty. So then people today, the modern audiences and these modern Gen X creators um, can't fathom that it might actually be lofty because it's not actually signaling and telling you telling you that it's lofty. It's not visibly patting itself on the back. Like, like when you watch a lot of these new things, you can almost hear the screenwriter and the director uh, patting themselves on the back over the actor's dialogue, you know? Right, right. So it's like when you hear Kurtz, because I read interviews with Kurtz, I read interviews with Lucas, and when you hear like a lot of the Jungian ideas that Mm -hmm. they were getting inspiration from and Joseph Campbell and stuff, you realize, wow, these guys are actually well-read and thinking very deeply about these things, but they wanted that those ideas to come through by action, by yes. dialogue, by choices, not by calling attention to to itself. And uh, that's something that you um, brought up in one of your videos, like this need to kind of tear the originals down that a lot of these new uh-huh. fans have to elevate what's happening yes. in the new ones. And it happened a lot with um, Damon Lindelof's Watchmen. A lot of these, and, and here's another big problem, and it's something I want to ask you about too later, is um, you talk a lot about how the corporate suits um, have a certain type of 
mindset of, you know, mm-hmm. we have to acquire things. Uh, in corporations, it's not the creative person who thrives, but the most conformist and mediocre person who doesn't rock the boat and who, who is right. good at passing blame. And you, you bring up Office Space as a great example, as a great illustration of it. Mm-hmm. And they hire, like, agencies and creators like... Um, the J.J. Abrams, the bad robots of the world, the Mark Millars, and if it's comic books, you know, these kind of cynical people who kind of think the same way where their big talent is to politic and ingratiate themselves to the right people and to kind of, you know, pander, like, you know, the Kevin Smiths of the world. What I find very interesting is that in the fan base, this kind of person is also being created and also in the journalism space. Like, there's no, like, someone might think Pauline Kael was very tough on star wars and that's true but at least she didn't think her job was to be a cheerleader for or against like you get a sense that's how she really felt whether you agree with it or not and like people didn't people weren't writing in hopes of getting jobs in hopes of getting invited to the premiere in hopes of you know getting to write a a movie or tv show for disney in the future you know like and the fans there's this weird space where everybody thinks they're going to do everyone else's job. You know, where Mm -hmm. uh, J.J. Abrams thinks he's going to one day write a comic book. The comic book writer is hoping to one day write a movie. The journalist is hoping to get a comic book deal or a screenplay deal. The uh, fan thinks that, you know, they're going to get to write reviews of this thing. And you get this incestual uh, thing where everybody is carrying water for the product um, Mm -hmm. on, on every level. So then what you start hap- happening is, what you start having happen is with Watchmen, right? That trashing of the original that you were talking about that fans do, I notice the, the directors and the creators will do that in defending the project. The journalists and experts who are supposed to be writing about the product, instead of pushing back on it, they'll just repeat that line at, at mm-hmm. face value instead of being like a kind of um, counterweight to yes. to whatever. So Lindelof's Watchmen, what they kept saying is over and over, Alan Moore's Watchmen was good, but it had a blind spot when it came to uh, race and white supremacy and race relations. And uh-huh. after I watched Lindelof's Watchmen, I went and back and started reading Alan Moore's Watchmen again. And white supremacy is implicated and analogized to through throughout it. You know, uh, there's mm-hmm. a character hooded justice. He has a he has a what looks like a clan hood and a noose around his neck, implied to have sympathized with Hitler. And what does he become in the modern world? He becomes the first uh, modern super vigilante. That's not an accidental coincidence that the first person to be attracted to, to superhero vigilanteism, to, to costume vigilanteism, is a fascist sympathizer. But right. Alan Moore didn't beat you over the head and say, hey, like if Lindelof did it, uh, he would have the hood fall off a white supremacist's head and then the superhero pick it up and slowly put it on, you know, and have some kind of very heavy handed origin story letting you know this guy is getting his inspiration from white supremacy. This guy, Mm -hmm. um, these people are analogs to white supremacists. Like if it's not if it's not didactic and beating you over the head with it. These people think there's no way this person could have thought of it. The same way these people will think your description of Star Wars is lofty because it didn't straight up act pretentious and pat itself on the back with um, the Jungian and Joseph Campbellian things it was drawing inspiration from. 
Yeah, and the thing about it is that um, that aspect of their creative personality, where you know they they make everything so, like you said, didactic and just just they beat you over the head with what what could be delivered subtly. It shares it's it shares the sofa uncomfortably with the other unfortunate trend of of Gen X storytellers, which is come comes very much from the reality bites uh, part of the the campground, which is that genuine sentiment is very rarely uh, seen as a comfortable thing by Gen X storytellers and, and filmmakers. So everything becomes very Joss Whedon-y, where everybody's witty, everybody has a quip. If things are about to get too serious in the dialogue or too serious in the story, very rarely are filmmakers uh, of the Gen X ilk able to not cut to the sarcastic joke or or cut away from the sentimental moment. And, and you know, that it's... It's strange. Like they've they've lost their subtlety and they've replaced it with sarcasm. Um, I don't I don't know how those two things manifested themselves at the same time in the same generation. Because I would think that if you are a sarcastic individual that doesn't that doesn't like sentiment, then you also wouldn't like the obvious. But that has not been the case. Movies have become more and more, like you said, we're going to tell you how you need to feel in this moment. And then they hit you over the head with a hammer. And at the same time, the characters in the story aren't really doing the emoting for you because characters can't be emotional anymore without being funny or without being witty. They always have to undercut and subvert the genuineness of the moment. You as the audience member are being guided through on a leash you know, by the by the director to say, see these funny characters? Okay, now you're supposed to feel this certain way, even though the characters are totally not acting really that way at all for the most part. Now go. And it's like, uh And when they do try to do genuine emotion, you can tell that it's not coming from any genuine place. So it just feels yeah. empty. To get to give you an example, one of the few attempts in those Whedon Avengers movies to have genuine emotion is when the Black Widow is supposed to bond with uh, Bruce Banner and and talk uh-huh. about how she um, how she was um, given some kind of hysterectomy so she would be uh-huh. the ultimate fighting machine. But yes. it's unearned because it didn't come from anywhere. It was kind of like okay, here's a here's a formula from a screenwriting manual, and you, <laughs> you should have uh, in the end of the second act, Sid Field says. You should have an emotional bonding moment, or Christopher Vogler in his twelve-step um, um, hero's journey manual says that there should be a bonding moment between two characters. This is that moment. So I'm going to pull out my ass. This horrifying, this horrifying uh, revelation to show that I'm deep, and and you know, so she so she just pulls out this horrifying uh, hysterectomy story that never was had the foundation laid for it before. And it's never right. mentioned again. It's not part of any uh-huh. arc. It's just pulled out. And so then even when they do kind of get rid of the sarcasm and go for something genuine, it's so empty and unearned by anything that came before it and unrealized or followed up on by anything that comes after it that it actually ends up being more distancing or more disconcerting. You know, it's, it's almost like a like whiplash, like... The, the movie goes right back into sarcasm and jokes and and one-liners in the very next scene. They, they go and fight Ultron, and no further movie has picked up picked up on that. So it, 
I think there's two things going on. There's what you said that there's no genuine emotion going on. Everything like like sincerity is very um frowned upon. Everything has to be undercut. But then yeah. when for whatever reason, maybe because you feel like you're supposed to, you do try to indulge in it, you have no practice at it. You have no interiority that you've earned in any of your characters to um stick the landing. It's just this kind of very awkward shoehorned in thing that happened in Damon Lindelof's Watchmen a lot, where they just kind of and giving give you these horrifying revelations about people that you're supposed to bond to, and because they do it in a very manipulative way, I think a very um, lazy viewer might get sucked in by the manipulation. Like like they know how to put on the acoustic cover of "I'm Still Standing" in the background, <laughs> and the and the lingering montage and the single tear, you know, and yeah. so. Even when they try it, it's just manipulative. It's not connective. It's not heartfelt at all. Yeah, I was. I uh, I did a video a, a while back. It, it's so funny that you brought up the second Avengers movie. Uh, I did a video a while back where I was. Um, I, I usually don't do a lot of movie reviews, but I I sometimes reflect on a movie here and there. Very rarely, but but in this case, I I was not a huge fan of the original Avengers film. And uh, when I saw the second one, I was still, I was still very much coming off of the feelings of the first one, and I probably didn't pay attention to it very much. And it generally got panned uh, by people at the time uh, as being inferior to the original, even though I was like, you know, I see them as equal. And people are like, what? What do you mean? Yeah, by that? yeah, I agree. I never understood uh, why uh, it got so panned to, compared to the original. Yeah, because because when I rewatched it. Uh, recently, a few last year, I was I was gearing up, I was ramping up to try and catch up to get ready for Infinity War, and uh, I watched it uh, as part of that flow, and I got really hooked into it, and I'm like, you know what, this movie has problems, and that scene that you mentioned is definitely one of the problems. It's one of the problems of the, of that film, but overall, I feel like that movie tried a lot harder than the films on either side of it. Uh, in, in the context of Avengers as a, as a marquee um, to deliver on something substantive. I'm not saying, I'm not even trying to imply that that movie like occupies a space like Empire Strikes Back or Lawrence of Arabia or Get Out or anything like that. I'm not even saying yeah. that, but I'm just saying that as far as Marvel is concerned, there's a lot more going on there that's, um, that's character driven and, uh, sort of story and psychologically driven than a lot of the other movies. And I wonder, as we're talking about this now, you know, about what audiences like, what Gen X filmmakers are like, what what our, our narrative uh, trends are right now as far as cr- uh, screenwriting. I wonder if that's why the movie didn't, didn't uh, get embraced by audiences at the time, because it was a little more introspective in places. It had plenty of action, but it also had a lot of psychological stuff at, at times and fever dreams and you know moments like luke in the cave like you were talking yeah. about you know yeah i know exactly yeah. what you mean with, with uh tony stark and, and and his his arc in that movie i i agree with you even though i didn't like that um that black widow scene i did think the movie was very unfairly um panned in fact outside of the scarlet uh witch scene I'm sorry, uh-huh. not Scarlet Witch. Outside of the Black Widow scene, the only other aspect of the movie I didn't like was that so many of the interesting threads that it laid out, it mm-hmm. in the third act, at the very end, just kind of hand-waved them away with the type of ending that the first Avengers had. And 
kind of right. like other movies to pick up on it. You know, like like I think yep. if it yep. followed through on his first two acts and tried to um, be a real movie instead of a setup for future movies, I think it, I think it could right. have been a very uh, good movie. But uh, I do agree that it did try to do more interesting things than the first Avengers did, which which to me, the first Avengers, even though um, I did enjoy it for what it was, it felt like when you were a kid, uh, remember those action figures? Well, well, I'm sure you definitely noticed based on what, you, what, what, what your channel's about. Uh, remember those action figure uh, commercials where it was a group of kids both playing with the Decepticons and the Transformers or the G.I. Joes and Cobras, and they're, ma- and they're uh-huh. mashing them together? Yep. Uh, the first Avengers movie and the next two after Ultron, I felt were just that. Uh-huh, they were. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you're right. It was those old toy commercials given like a $65 million, or two, actually a $200 million budget. <laughs> you're right, though. That's why I didn't enjoy the first Avengers. I was like, I looked over at Melinda when we were sitting there in the theater, and I said, I'll never forget, I looked over at her and I said, is this it? Meaning we were in the middle of the movie, too. I was like, is this it? Are they ever going to get off that helicarrier? Are they ever going to actually go do the plot they keep saying is the plot? Like, when are they going to go look for this Tesseract? When are they go- They're just bickering on the helicarrier. And she looked over at me. She's like, yeah, there's not much here. And I'm like, yeah, this is ridiculous. So I totally feel what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, I had a question for you, right? Yeah. Uh, h- how much how, how much have you read um, comics? I don't know how well-versed you are in comics. I saw you had a video on the New 52 that I watched that I agreed mm-hmm. with a lot. But like, I know more about comics than I know about a lot of the toy stuff. But w- what I found very interesting, even though you were focused on filmmaking in your Gen X Rot video, was it captured a lot of how I felt about 2000s comics. 2000s uh-huh. comics were, I thought, very much a wasteland in a, in a lot of ways. And the wasteland that was happening in 2000s comics, I have to admit, I was a fan of at the time. It's kind of like with age and retrospect. Like, I used to like um, Kevin Smith movies. By the time he started doing some of his later comic work, like he did something with Daredevil. Yep. And I was like, okay, this is just Frank Miller karaoke. Like, like, uh-huh. like, like I started like seeing like the chinks in the armor, but... It wasn't until he did this Batman story where Batman pees on himself that I was like, okay, okay, something's wrong here. But right. I, but I liked um, Mark Millar. Now, uh-huh. now I look back and I look at like Mark Millar, Brian Michael Bendis, the Ultimate Line, um, some of Grant Morrison stuff, and all I see is that like that weird cynicism, that unearned arrogance, that lack of original ideas, but uh, arrogant as if they, they're recreating the wheel just because they, they remix like some superficial things. Uh, the weird sense of like smug, and, smug entitlement. Um, yes. I, I, I'll, give, I'll give one um, prototypical story, right? Is um, Warren Ellis picked up on Ultimate Fantastic Four after Brian Michael Bendis and, and Mark Millar um, kicked it off. So Warren Ellis has this story, right? That it's like the first adventure together against Dr. Doom. Uh, Brian B- Michael Bendis and Mark Millar just did the opening arc. For people who don't know, Ultimate Fantastic Four was just basically um, the movie pitch version of Fantastic Four. Like the Ultimate Universe in retrospect was just basically them making movie pitches to Hollywood, adapting their own comic books. Th- that's all it was. Um, and it's just basically Gen X creators remixing the original 1960s comic books, right? Uh-huh. And so they're doing their remix version of the first Fantastic Four fight against Doctor Doom. And one of the things that happens, right, uh, the car that the Fantastic Four rides in, the flying car is called the Fantastic Car in the original Stan Lee, Jack Kirby stories. And it's been called the Fantastic Car for 
40, 50, 60 years, however long it's been uh, at play. But now because we have these Gen X too cool for school creators who are going to redeem the property and make it cool for normies, right? Yeah. Because the whole thing is to make it cool for normies. These are supposed to be comic books that your girlfriend or your hairdresser or your accountant, you know, would not be embarrassed to read, right? Um, Such a fool's errand, ex- but yeah. Exactly. Uh, especially because if you look back in the days, those things used to sell to millions of people. The same as Star Wars had no problem appealing to normies. It's ridiculous to think that Star Wars needs to be dumbed down for normies when the original one did better for normies than the new ones, but that's a whole, exactly. that's a whole different story. Um, so the Fantastic Four... Uh, is going to go fight Dr. Doom. And then Reed Richards kind of sheepishly says, I think I have a way to get there, guys. And they're like, what is it? And he goes, here, I built this when I was, um, you know, in, in college. And he, he, he whips it out. And it's um, the Fantastic Car. And they're like, what is that? Um, well, don't laugh. You got to remember, I named it when I was a child prodigy. It's called the Fantastic Car. And everyone starts laughing. And then for the rest of the issue they're flying places and they're doing all these quips like like josh whedon didn't create those quips i feel like the gen x comic writers started it in the comics and he was the first person to bring it to the movies but but they're basically quipping the whole time like uh, the thing in the human torch the whole flight are making fantastic puns like hey is that the fantastic wheel uh push the fantastic brakes you know and and they're snickering right and then they land the thing and then i'm like at the end of the day you still called it the fantastic car like, <laughs> if you think you're so above, if you think you're so much smarter than Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, who named this thing and had it stick for 60 years, and that people nostalgically loved for years and called the Fantastic Car with, so, with no sense of irony, if, you, if you're embarrassed by it, if you think you should be embarrassed by it, why not just not mention Fantastic Car at all? Give it a better name. Have him uh, take the tarp off and say, this is the blank. But you have given it no better name in this whole issue, you've you've made fun of the name the whole time, but you still, at the end of the day, have him call it the Fantastic Car, and you're going to have him keep calling it the Fantastic Car for the rest of your run, you know? Right. You just put the dumb, cheap jokes in there to kind of, like, say, hey, guys, you know, even though I have no original ideas, I want you to know, like, I know this looks stupid, and I'm better than it, and I'm embarrassed by the source material, and I want to make sure that you normies know I'm really one of you, even though... And, and it's like, I'd be more impressive either you... S- kept the name but committed to it and acted like it was the coolest thing on earth or if you don't think it's good don't in a meta way in story mock it show us your chops show us that you can come up with a better name and i feel like that story is indicative of what a lot of these things do where they mock something of the original to kind of show some kind of solidarity with normies or that they're afraid they're ashamed of the um source material but at the very end hit all the same story notes or keep all the same stuff. And the same thing with Ryan Johnson's uh, Last Jedi, it ends with the same good versus evil battle. It ends with um, um, Luke Skywalker committing to the side of good and being the cavalry. It ends with the Obi-Wan moment. It ends... Like, I made a list of things that are the fake subversions of Last Jedi, right? So it's like the Canto Blight scene, the subversion is supposed to be that the resistance may be as bad as the other side and everyone buys the weapons from the same place. But then um, at the end, they just double down their commitment to the resistance and they're the best side to be with after all. Um, the Last Jedi is a child. The Last Jedi... Um, that's, that's other examples. Sorry. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, they say the Force is about more than just lifting rocks. But Ray's final big triumph in the movie is... Just lifting more rocks, you know. Um, All right. Uh, 
Yoda says, um, the past must die. Kill it so you can grow. And then he sends fire down on the, the Jedi books. But then you find out that Yoda actually was playing a trick and he smuggled the books out. So um, uh, you remember the books are actually in the, in the um, spaceship with Rey? Right. So it's like, what was the point of the past must die? Kill it so you can grow. And you didn't really burn the books. You were faking it. You know, just kidding. The books were saved uh, after all. And, and that's what I feel like with the Fantastic Car scene. You know, like uh, you still are going to use all the same tropes. You're going to double down on them. Um, you just have to do this fake show of acting like you're above them and you're better than the creator. You're going to still use them and you have no better ideas at the end of the day. Yeah, it's 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 definitely one of those uh, epidemics in Hollywood uh, where I, I talked about it a little bit uh, with with some friends. And I think I brought it up in a video at one point where they they know that the property is popular enough or the character or whatever it is. It could be in the comic book medium. It could be in film, whatever you want to wh- wh- take your pick. But they they know that the franchise, the character, the license is popular enough that it still makes money out there in the world. So they want it. But the moment they get it, they're completely unfamiliar and therefore uncomfortable with all the trappings of that that very uh, creative niche world. And so like you said, they have to try and normalize it for the muggles of the world. And it's like, um, in certain cases, like with Star Wars, it was already uh, widely loved. It was already as mainstream as it gets. I don't know why you think it's weird. You guys are the weird ones, not the people that love Star Wars. Okay. Yeah, the Clearly, muggles. Are, you, the muggles already love Star Wars. Yeah, you guys in the in the corporations are and at the studios, you're the squirrely weirdos that don't get it. And I don't know why, but you don't. Um, and so the first thing they want to do is start changing everything. They want to start changing everything. It's it's not about. They'll say all day up and down that it's about making it comfortable for Joe Public. But what they're really saying is, I'm uncomfortable with this stuff. It's not everybody else out there. It's me. They don't, they're not self-aware enough to know that's what's going on because they project. They think everybody out there is like them. And the truth of the matter is, people in corporations, they're not normal. They're not like anybody. Uh, <laughs> like they're they're not. They're, they're not, not like yeah, people. They're not. Yeah, yeah, they're not people like you and me. Like I was in a corporation for 12 years. Uh, after I was a journalist, just because I was tired of, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck. I just, the PR people, they seemed really happy all the time. And I'm like, wow, I'd like to be happy. And so I, I, you know, found myself at a company doing PR for a while. And that led me to another company. And that comprised about 11 and a half years of my life. But the whole time, everybody looked at me weird. It was like my resume got me in the door, but then immediately my personality was such that boy, these corporate drones—they were uncomfortable with me. They did not like what I, you know, brought to the table, and and I started to realize. I actually asked a guy one day. I said I was—he just started the started at the department, and I said, "So hey man, um, you know, nice to meet you." Blah blah blah. I said, "What are your interests? What do you do? Like you know, after work, what do you do on the weekends?" And he actually sat there for you know a few beats, and then he just kind of looked at me. He was thinking about it too. Like he was thinking about it. He wasn't like being dead brain. He was thinking about it. And then he goes, you know, I just don't have any interests. And I, dude, I was floored. I was like, oh my God. Because what that means now is people like him are the ones in the boardrooms making the decisions for what the next comic book story arc is going to be, what the next movie franchise is going to be, what the next television series is going to be. And they don't have 
any interest. I swear they 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 clock out at five o'clock. They go home to a, a, a beige walled room with one chair in the middle with nothing in it. They sit in that chair and they just wait for work to start at 8 a.m. the next day so they can get up and go back. I think maybe some of these people might have been striving or on the Ivy League and and executive suite path yeah. from like very young. So maybe they got no chance to um, develop any type of hobbies or interests unless it was going to help their um, resume or, uh-huh. or or their 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 Harvard applications. Or maybe when they did watch things, they didn't really have time to sit there and think and like nerd out and introspect because they had to go right back to um, studying or whatever. Because the reason I say that is because I don't understand how as a human being in the world, you even ha- can have a whole boardroom full of people who have no idea what Star Wars is about on a basic level that you need to bring in J.J. Uh, Abrams and Ryan Johnson to explain it to you. Because to me, that is as mainstream. That's not Star Wars is not niche at all. Right. Like, right. like just as a human being in the world, you should be able to like when J.J. Abrams or Ryan Johnson comes in, be able to say, well, you know, uh, like, like me, for example, earlier when I said that I'm a casual fan, but just from paying attention when I watched it the first time, I kind of realized Ryan Johnson, like, what are you talking about? You know, um, yeah. like like these people will just swallow anything that these people um tell them that the property is about and they seem to have no prior knowledge and it makes you wonder like what was the life like that you just know nothing about something as popular and and ubiquitous as as star wars and that question alone i think answers itself like the fact that you even have to ask i look i i i know that in one video i mentioned you know that that i i worked at a company where they were trying to find the a person to take over the uh product placement for movies and tv and i was like jumping up and down like that's it's my resume. Let me do that. I, I've got this in the bag, and they literally gave it to the one. They, I swear they would have had to fig, find this out, but then I realized all of them were like that. They gave it to a person who, fifteen minutes after getting the job, she popped her head over over the cube wall and asked me. She said, "Do you know who the actress Jude Law is?" And I was just like, oh, "Of course they gave it to to a person that has been raised by wolves." Like I I can't even believe um, it's. I, I don't know where these people come from and how they ascend. Second story, and, and I, this one hasn't been in a video, but but um, it's more than relevant. Uh, I'm, I'm working at my first uh, corporate job. I go out for lunch uh, by myself because I've quickly realized I didn't want to eat lunch with any of those people. And I come back uh, to the parking garage, and um, I was... I'm an eccentric person. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I was younger then and I was still stupid. And, um, I had, uh, bought a DeLorean because I love DeLoreans. I love the eighties. So I bought a DeLorean and occasionally I would drive that car to work. And it was like on a Friday or whatever. And I drove this DeLorean to the, the parking garage and I went and got my lunch, came back, sitting in the car in the parking garage, got my doors up, listening, you know, to some eighties music as you do. And, uh, just minding my own business. Music isn't on loud or anything. And this lady comes back from lunch. I don't know her. She's from some other department. I've never seen her before in my life. And she comes walking by, and I'm just checking my messages, listening to my music. I think it was, I think the Cars was on, or Duran Duran or something. And um, she stops, and she says, excuse me. And I'm like, yes. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, what did I do? You know, and she says, what What kind of car is this? What What kind of car? And I said, uh, it's, uh, it's called a DeLorean. 
And uh, I'm used to people not knowing what that means. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I, I don't know what that is. And I, and, but I'm not used to what happened next. So I said, it's the car from, from the movie Back to the Future. And dude, her face stayed equally blank. Oh, wow. And she goes, she's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I said, Michael J. Fox, time travel comedy. The, the car is a time machine. Uh, I, no, no, I never. And I'm just, and she wasn't like 80. I mean, this woman was probably, maybe at the time she was in her late 40s, early 50s. Like, so she would have been, you know, and I'm just, and then she just kind of walked off and and I, uh, and I'm like, this, these are the pod people that I'm working with. Like this is, and then when I went to the next corporation, it didn't change. You, uh, you could have closed your eyes from one corporation to the next and you wouldn't have known that you'd ever changed jobs or companies. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. Be good.